A few years ago, the ad revenue forecasts for podcast advertising were estimated to pass the $1 billion mark in 2023. But that actually happened in 2021. As both startup and mainstream brands flood dollars into podcast and digital audio advertising, many companies still struggle with how to accurately measure the impact these channels have on driving ROI. Claritas has emerged as a leader in helping brands, publishers, and agencies accurately measure attribution and the incremental lift podcasts and digital audio channels have on helping marketers drive success. Listen to their latest podcast to hear more about the current and future direction of these high-impact, yet still somewhat emerging channels. For more information, visit claritas.com slash claritas podcast. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is Seijin Zhang. Seijin is the head of marketing for Open Store. They are a really interesting player in the e-commerce space, have been there a while, have really seen the ebb and flow and evolution, all the impacts of COVID on e-commerce, and are one of the companies that really is bringing the industry forward. And uh, Shajin, we're thrilled to have you here today and uh, a hearty welcome to Great Minds. Well, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. So uh, there are so many places to start with you, but I thought we'd start in an area where you have to be cool under fire and you have to be able to react really quickly. And that goes back to your time quite some time ago when you worked in the fire department and you were a strategy assistant to the deputy chief developing plays around data in the early early days of data and mobile technology 2005 a very different form but i'd love to start and go all the way back to that experience and i'm guessing Sajin, there are a lot of lessons that you learned there in that literally life and death environment that you probably carry forward to this day at Open Store and and beyond. Yeah, sure. Well, thanks for asking. And uh, um, as you can tell, I come from a little bit of an unconventional background. I was born and raised in Korea, actually a rural part of Korea. Um, and um, growing up in Korea gives you a lot of uh, unique perspectives and opportunities. Um, one thing you have to do is military service uh, if you're a male there. Um, and as part of the two-year mandatory service, um, I chose to work at the fire department headquarters uh, in Busan, which is the second biggest city in Korea. Um, and I spent two years there working with them at the command center. Um, and that uh, opportunity was pretty transformative uh, for, for me uh, at age 20. Um, I was barely new to the uh, society and uh, uh, basically looking at how a major city operation that's covering four hundred uh, four million people in population. How they leverage technology, even early in the early days of leveraging mobile technology or all the uh, video-based technology across the city. Uh, that was really interesting, and also at the same time working at a really big organization with more structure. Uh, and how they uh, build up a process that can basically save lives uh, in real time, um, leveraging technology. That was that was a, a, a transformative uh, experience uh, for me back then. Um, and 
just from that experience, I, I learned so much about, uh, you know, make, making sure look at the you look at the right data at the right timing to make data-informed decisions, uh, which interestingly uh, can be applied across any discipline in business as well. When I look at marketing as well, it's all about working at the right data at the right timing and coming up with the right decisions off of it. So um, during the early days of my career back then uh, at the uh, fire department, that was just like a really big takeaway for me uh, in making sure that I look at the, the data properly and come up with uh, data-informed decisions to either save lives or even bring more value to the customers. Fantastic. So we're going to jump around here, and I want to connect that early experience to what you're doing today at Open Store. Frame the technology toolkit that we you were using back then in Korea, again, almost 20 years ago, uh, relative to the toolkit that you have at your disposal now in 2023. Yeah, sure. That's a, that's a really fun question. Uh, uh, I'll try to connect the dots over here. It's a completely different context uh, 20 years ago, but I'll, I'll do my best here. So back then, um, the fire department headquarters back in Korea, they built up an in-house technology solution that basically gave you a about like 80% coverage um, of the entire city. Um, based on the 35-ish high-resolution cameras that they can use to specifically pinpoint the address where the events happen. So whether it's a fire breaking out from miles away, whether it's some emergency event happening from different part of the town, what you can do is uh, type in the exact address into the in-house system, and the cameras would basically, you know, pinpoint to the specific location to give you the real-time view and let the uh, responders um, determine the level of response that they can provide to the specific areas within minutes. And that literally made a huge difference after they introduced the system back then. Um, and when I think back upon those days, that was still early in the development of the sort of uh, all the latest technologies that you can use. We didn't even have AI back then, um, but, but still they did uh, some sort of a methodical programming to basically leverage technology to save lives uh, by saving the time it takes to get to the uh, actual event uh, site, which was critical. Now, fast forward 20 years or so, now here at Open Store, we basically have access to all the latest uh, technological innovations uh, in AI or even data management or even managing e-commerce stores uh, across all the different industries. It's it's really groundbreaking. Um, and when I think about the core principle that you can think about uh, in any discipline, whether it's uh, in the private sector or public sector, like fire department, I think it really comes down to this one principle of leveraging technology as much as possible in a way where you embrace the new innovations as much as possible to your advantage versus being a little bit defensive and thinking that, hey, this is gonna take away my job. This is gonna basically break the entire industry or society. Um, so we cannot really ad uh, adopt it right away. Um, whereas in reality, when you think creatively and think about the core problems that you're trying to solve and what these new technologies can do to improve your productivity or access to information, 
it can actually do a lot of good things right away when you think about that. So I would say that's something I noticed from, you know, these two different organizations, basically, you know, almost like a 9,000 miles away, 20 years of time difference. Uh, but that's still an, a principle that's intact across these two organizations, um, which I really appreciate, uh, uh, given the fact that I had the opportunities uh, to work in these companies or, or organizations in general. Well, I'm not sure it was a totally fair question I asked you, but that was a great answer. So interesting. Let's stay here just for one more second and touch on something you said right at the beginning, which was this was part of your mandatory military service. Israel is another country that has mandatory military service. And I'm wondering aloud, both uh, South Korea and Israel are so advanced in tech, there are so many younger players like you who are really having not just influence at home, but globally, and in particular, excelling in technology in general, and many players in our world in technology. Do you think there's some common thread there to that experience being in the military and then jumping at a really high level in both Israel and Korea into tech related enterprises. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I can definitely speak more to the Korean society and how the military service uh, shapes the entire sort of cultural norm and expectations in general. But I also have had quite a lot of awesome friends from Israel who went through similar military service experience as well. So maybe I can speak to that a little bit as well. But high level, as I reflect back upon the past 20 years that I spent across, you know, Seoul, Busan, and both in South Korea, or even here in the States of Francisco, Miami, or Philly. Um, one thing that really comes out to um, surprise me is the, the sort of a, um, common theme around discipline and rigor in, in execution. Um, that's actually shared across uh, um, the highest level of uh, performance uh, players uh, across Silicon Valley or even in Korea. Um, and, and in Korea, it's actually part of the culture to a degree where I think it's a little bit too much. Um, and especially for guys, when you go through the military service, you know, after two years uh, of doing the day-to-day -day, you know, uh, hardworking, disciplined day-to-day um, uh, -day, um, schedule, you basically become a different person. And there's a common saying uh, in Korea that uh, when you're growing uh, up uh, young and you're basically you know, playing around mischievous, doing a lot of uh, crazy things, people will basically tell you, hey, just go to the military to become, become a man. And uh, people actually recommend that you do the military service as soon as possible because you come out of it as a different person. Um, and it's really that two-year experience, which I think is... Uh, um, truly transformative uh, for a lot of the guys, uh, especially in, in the early days of their uh, career, where where they get to you know pick up the true discipline day to day, high standard uh, of success, um, and the actual pressure to perform um, and be better every day. Um, that's actually a real thing uh, in Korea, um, and after they finish the service they continue to operate in different parts of the society, whether it's public or private sector. Um, they set really high standards uh, of performance uh, in anything they do. 
uh, and the organizational culture itself was pretty rigid um, and sometimes it's a little bit too hierarchical to a degree where it mirrors the military structure as well. It's getting better, um, especially with uh, newer startups popping out there in Korea as well. But in general, when I look upon the successes of the previous generation companies like Samsung, LG, Hyundai, all making huge, huge impact across the entire world, uh, it really comes down to that discipline, hard work, and also the actual execution focus, how they continue to deliver um, versus sort of getting caught up in more of a high level thinking and not being able to deliver, kind of slacking off uh, here and there. That's not really acceptable in the sort of a um, Korean norm. Um, so it can be a little bit too competitive. Uh, trust me, I went through the entire experience there. Also went through one of the most uh, uh, competitive boarding schools uh, back in Korea. So. You know, I, I only slept for about uh, five hours uh, every day uh, during my high school days. Uh, I would wake up at 6 a.m. Um, to do morning exercise, to study until 1 a.m. That that was part of what was expected. Um, maybe a little bit too much, but also at the same time, when I think about the success uh, that the Koreans have achieved so far, it really comes down to that hard work and discipline and uh, and the focus on, on, on improving yourself every day. Well, it's great insights into, you know, the success recipe that we find in the Korean kitchen, if you will, everywhere. I mean, you know, here in New York, you know, you look at the work ethic of people and what I love about the immigrant experience in general. You know, my grandfather came through Ellis Island and one of the beauties of America, when we think of there are still things that are beautiful about our country, is everybody here comes from somewhere else. You know, to a large degree, I think the political discourse has forgotten that. Yes. That our history is we are a nation of immigrants. And the immigrant work ethic, especially for those first and second generations here, you know, they're starting on the bottom rung of the ladder. And you see that Korean work ethic here. You know, if you want a cup of coffee in New York, you know, at midnight, you're probably going to a Korean owned, you know, 24 hour store. And you see these businesses that are family owned and run, and it's inspirational. You had a great four year run as a product marketing manager at LG. LG is one of those Korean brands that is now a dominant global brand. And you know, I'm a little older than you. When I was a kid, you wanted a Sony TV. That was the gold standard. And there were other great Japanese brands, many of which are still around. You know, Panasonic was another great one. And somewhere along the line, the Korean electronics companies, you can say the same for the Korean car companies. Japan still makes great cars. Germany makes great cars, great cars out of Scandinavia. Um, but the Korean cars, the story there, uh, and we'll go back to LG in a second, but you know, worth mentioning and referencing the incredible success of Hyundai, of Kia, of the Genesis high-end luxury brand. Tremendous following what Toyota did with Lexus and what Nissan did with Infiniti. Uh, as good as any of the German cars, which I think are still held in, in particularly high regard in America and globally. But talk about the rise of those great brands in your recollections of your tenure at LG, 
seems like part of that Korean success recipe that we just talked about. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, a lot of what I just uh, talked about uh, um, really applied to some of those great brand success uh, stories uh, across the world over the past uh, couple of decades. Um, I do have a lot of friends uh, work at Samsung, LG, Hyundai, or Kia um, back in Korea as well. Um, the key things I would call out here again is maybe a couple of things. One, again, like amazing work ethic there. Uh, I mean, you would complain about uh, working 45 hours uh, here per week uh, in the States. Uh, and and back in Korea, when you work uh, 45 hours per week, people will be ecstatic. It's 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 amazing to have the work-life balance uh, there. Um, and, and, and then the Korean government and the society have done a lot to basically sort of uh, mitigate the sort of a burnout that, that happened from that uh, hardworking culture and expectations from different companies in general. But still, in general, it's a, it's a very hardworking culture. Um, and um, there's a strong work ethic um, pretty much uh, embedded into every piece of the society at this point. And along with that comes extreme attention to the details and execution. So even back uh, when I was uh, working at LG, um, we would um, consistently try to uh, um, get to the bottom of a problem, whether it's sales slowdown in a specific country um, or whether it's something along the lines of supply chain management. Um, they would consistently analyze um, to every little detail that they can identify and try to come up with the solution that can be implemented to deliver impact, which I think is crucial for any business when you think about um, it's essentially problem solving every day, right? And how you actually come up with the solution that can solve the problem right away and implement it as soon as possible. So from that standpoint, strong work ethic, along with the extreme deten uh, attention to the details, definitely help to um, improve their performance over time, the overall quality of the products that they deliver and the high uh, performance uh, um, bar that they set for themselves. Uh, in consistently improving themselves uh, personally and professionally, I think have, um, have uh, helped a lot uh, in improving um, these uh, brands' performance and the perception of these brands uh, um, in, in non-Korean territories as well. Um, and even back when I was uh, first starting my career at LG, you know, LG still was a pretty nascent brand uh, from a global standpoint. But, you know, now after 20 years, uh, it's pretty much a household name. Um, it has a lot of awesome luxury uh, uh, brands uh, under the apparent uh, brand as well. Similar thing for Samsung, Hyundai, Kia as well. Um, so it's a pretty remarkable to see all these brands uh, um, recent um, rise. Uh, you probably think that it's out of nowhere. They somehow uh, made it work. But I would say it's decades of hard work uh, behind the scene. Um, you know, tens of thousands of uh, uh, team uh, team uh, team players working day and night to basically deliver customer satisfaction uh, on a day to day basis. I would say. And somewhere, much like what you've done at Open Store, technology is a big driver here. Whether it's your tech stack that you're deploying in the field today at Open Store, or back then when LG and Samsung and the automotive brands, those are all 
everything today is based on chips and technology. So there had to be a lot of underlying strength in Korea in engineering and in the sciences, I would think. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, technology itself is um, a huge driver in, in productivity uh, in Korea, I would say. Um, people in general in Korea are very, very open to trying new technology um, to a degree where I find it super interesting uh, and surprising uh, these days that uh, you hear about this latest advancement or new products released uh, here uh, in, in the States or even in the uh, uh, Bay Area today. Within six hours, you'd hear it uh, making headlines in Korea. Um, like they're just so up to speed with the latest uh, developments, especially from, from the States. They're also open to trying them out and applying them into their own products um, as quickly as possible. Um, so that's that's that uh, openness to try new technology. Also, on the other hand, they have invested quite a ton of money in research and development over the past uh, three decades or so. Um, the government itself was very supportive of tech-driven uh, tech uh, initiatives in general. Um, so all in all, um, that openness to technology and openness to try them out in their products have also helped them um, stand out uh, in the crowd um, with, uh, with, with basically you know, industry-leading uh, products uh, with new technologies uh, uh, implemented. Yeah, I mentioned before we started uh, recording, uh, one of our dear friends, uh, Khalid Sheriff, who's the CEO of eMedia out of Johannesburg, their technology partner is Korean. And Khalik and his leadership team shared a lot of uh, what they're doing there, what they're developing, and they absolutely love their Korean partners. And I think it speaks to the globality of what has been created there, stretching from, you know, Atlanta on, in America on our East Coast to uh, Africa and the great city of Johannesburg and throughout the country. So really interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's truly global in today's world. Uh, it's so great to see different people from different backgrounds sort of um, work together uh, in, in these random places of the world, uh, leveraging technologies from different countries. Uh, it's 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 truly amazing when you think about uh, the investments that we've made over the past uh, four decades or so. Absolutely tremendous stuff. Okay, so we're going to get into your uh, eventual uh, move to San Francisco, and I know you had an experience at uh, Google, an experience at Facebook. Um, but let's talk about a company you co-founded in the grocery e-commerce space. Uh, I'm gonna guess there's a more direct connection to what you're doing from a business that you founded to what you're doing today at OpenStore. Yeah, sure. So I decided to come to the States after spending four years at LG doing a lot of awesome global marketing. Um, basically selling internet TVs in countries like Nigeria, Iran, Brazil. Uh, that was pretty much uh, uh, my four years back uh, there in a nutshell. After that, I really wanted to um, come over here to the States, uh, especially the Bay Area, understand the true drivers of innovation and how they operate. Um, so I did my um, business school uh, MBA uh, at Penn. And as part of the uh, program um, during the um, summer, I had a chance to work at Nest Labs, uh, which was co-founded by Tony Fidel and Matt Rogers, uh, the makers of 
iPhone and uh, iPod previously. Um, and it was really an interesting time. They were just acquired by Google for more than $3 billion. Um, and I worked there as a, a MBA intern for about three months. And, and that was basically an eye-opening experience of um, I, hearing all about the uh, entrepreneurial journey that uh, Tony and Matt had uh, through their experience in that basically, you know, forced me to think about what can I do before it's too late. Um, so um, back at Penn, um, I, um, I was fortunate to end my program uh, one quarter earlier. Uh, for some reason, I took too many courses uh, too early uh, back then, and I had some time to do my own thing. So I teamed up with a friend of mine um, from, from Wharton there um, and decided that there was an opportunity to start a mobile grocery delivery service um, based in Korea um, and see if we can deliver real impact, um, both from business standpoint, but, but also from social impact as well, um, because... Um, the sort of traditional farmers markets um, um, in Korea were huge, huge uh, historically. Uh, it generates a lot of jobs across the entire country. Um, it has great products, uh, lower prices, but sometimes the checkout experience uh, doesn't really support uh, credit cards. Parking is limited. Uh, so we thought uh, mobile can deliver a solution to solve those uh, uh, problems. So we basically, you know, came up with an idea. We pitched the idea uh, to local investors back in Korea, uh, got some seed uh, seed round uh, funding from the government and the investors there, launched the product, uh, and um, we had a lot of fun uh, back then uh, introducing awesome products uh, delivered to customers through mobile app, um, and um, that was that was a fun experience and. I decided to leave the startup to my uh, co-founder um, because I wanted to um, basically stay here in the States and uh, given the visa requirements and everything, um, that's when I decided to get a full-time job at Udemy, the online education marketplace. Um, and um, with that, uh, you know, uh, we got a lot of awesome learnings and uh, uh, eventually we um, sold the company to uh, Kakao, uh, which is um, one of the uh, big internet players in, in Korea. Um, but uh, with that uh, came a lot of awesome learnings around how you run e-commerce, how you run your team, how you build up uh, the entire business from scratch. Fantastic stuff. And does that business, is, I know you ran for about two years. What happened to it? Yeah, so full-time, I was working on it for only about uh, half a year. Um, and um, I was doing more of a part-time advisory role while working for Udemy. So it's basically, you know, daytime, I would work at Udemy, come back home, take a shower and jump on conference calls endless for four hours. Um, I did that for uh, another year and a half. Um, and then after we sold it to uh, Kakao, uh, we uh, decided to wind down uh, given the capital intensive nature of the business. Uh, and then also the team composition back then, uh, we basically had to find ways to, to make our ends meet uh, but all in all it was an awesome experience fantastic story so let's go back again and and you know set the stage for us to go forward one of the things that you referenced a few times is work ethic whether it was what you saw you know when you were at the fire department what you learned in the military what's ingrained in the culture uh what you saw at lg etc 
you know, looking back when I was a kid, the great electronics brands were a lot of American brands, uh, RCA, Magnavox, GE, which was a bellwether brand, not only for televisions, but, you know, electronics and appliances more broadly. Everybody had a GE washer dryer or refrigerator. That was a, a bellwether brand. They're all gone. Is it an oversimplification to say maybe they're gone because the competition, and let's reference Korea in particular, just worked harder? It could be a little bit of oversimplification, but I do think there's enough substance to it to maybe um, use that as a major hypothesis in drawing the conclusion there. So I would say, you know, just in, in simple terms, I mean, it's all about input versus output, right? And even at a higher productivity rate, if you have a competitor that's working literally 2x what you do here, or even 3x what you do here to get better every day, chances are you will lose in that battle. And that's what we've seen a lot with the Japanese uh, companies uh, um, way back uh, in the 70s or 80s. And then over the past uh, 30 years or so, it's really been Korean companies. We see this uh, from Chinese companies these days uh, as well. Um, and even the Chinese companies uh, have like even stronger work ethic, I would say. Um, they wouldn't necessarily complain about working 50 hours per week. They would be happy um, to be working 50 hours per, per day to get better. Um, so I would say, you know, it it definitely is a case um, when you think about the actual, you know, absolute amount of input, uh, the human hours that you put in to deliver um, the impact uh, in the business itself. Yeah, really interesting stuff. And I, I think there probably has to be something to that theory, right? If if your competition's working two, three times harder, eventually, you know, on the racetrack, they're going to catch you. I bet. Yeah, yeah. And, and also the talent there. Um, is pretty incredible, especially in Korea. Education is everything for any household. When you <laughs> grab anybody, anybody on the street and ask them about the top priority for them is education for the kids. Um, and they invest quite a lot of money. Again, maybe a little bit too excessive from from uh, from, uh, from your standards here in the States. But uh, also, I mean, even in the States, I see that uh, quite common when you go to different parts of the uh, country, you know, you know, youth, basically do everything you can to get your kids to better schools and better community, better friends, better networks. Um, it's, it's, it's all that uh, accumulated in the Korean society uh, on top of the hardworking, strong work ethic that you see there. Yeah, it's a, this is a whole separate subject for a conversation. Listen, I, I think there are still tremendous pockets of strength in America. And I think our culture and our standing around the world, all the uh, political nonsense aside, is still really unique. But you can just see where work ethic, where commitment, where the globalization of the economy, and you said something else that's worth repeating about the evolution and perception of the strength of those brands out of Korea. They're now viewed as gold standard brands. When many of them launched in America, that was not the case. Chinese brands are now going through a similar continuum where in, in simplest terms, a lot of stuff that came out of China, you would refer to here as junk. You're now referring to as top tier 
And you can see, I think in automotive, they're about to really, you know, take off. We're going to see that same thing. And a lot of, uh, a lot of Chinese technology brands are uh, the TVs, the Roku TVs are all TCL out of China. And they're now, you know, a really good brand. So interesting uh, following Korea's path in many ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's always uh, fascinating to see the developments of these new brands from overseas. Um, but again, to your point, I think, um, um, I think the U.S. is still the best country to do business or even um, basically start an organization um, because of the openness to new technologies and all the awesome uh, opportunities that you provide, uh, regardless of your background. Um, so from that standpoint, I think the U.S. is still leading the pack with awesome, you know, um, sets of innovations happening um, across all fields of the society. Uh, I mean, country itself uh, has uh, its own unique challenges, but I mean, anywhere you go, you would see so many of challenges of its uh, sort. So I think that's part of it. But uh, um, still, it's just so fascinating to see all these, uh, you know, new brands uh, popping out from nowhere and some somehow becoming a household name uh, in less than, you know, 10 years or so. Yeah, no, absolutely true. Really interesting. So let's talk about your experience in San Francisco. You worked at Udemy, as you said, as a director of marketing. You had uh, some experience uh, with Google around Nest Labs and also a tenure at Facebook uh, working in the reality labs. Talk about that collective experience and uh, as of right, how it fueled and helped you with where you are today at OpenStore, but also keeping with one of our themes of our conversation so far, comparing those companies and cultures to an LG by way of example and what you saw in terms of the things we're talking about, about around work ethic, around innovation, around talent, you know, just sort of compare and contrast a little bit because it, it, it takes our conversation further in a different way. Yeah, yeah, totally. So after I came to the States, I spent almost uh, 10 years working in the tech startups or tech companies in general, um, some big, some smaller. But at Udemy, I was uh, one of the early team members. Um, I, when I joined the company, it was around 100 people. Uh, over the next uh, four years, uh, the team grew to almost 1,000. Um, the revenue jumped uh, almost 10x uh, during the four years I was there. Um, and then I moved on to um, different companies like Facebook um, and Abound um, to, to um, take different opportunities uh, in applying the same lessons and um, skill sets uh, in different products and different industries, but in very, very similar functions, really helping to introduce these awesome products to more people in different geographies with different uh, audience sets. Um, and it's been an awesome experience. Uh, I feel like I've had one of the most eye-opening experiences over the past 10 years in these different companies. Um, they all operate differently. Uh, even if it's the same tech company, it's completely different, um, whether it's uh, a Series A or Series B company or a public company like Facebook, how you operate, how you innovate, how you introduce new products, it's all different. Um, but I would say to generalize a little bit uh, to your question around the general sort of a lineup um, thinking around the uh, Korean co corporate culture and the uh, U.S. tech uh, culture in general, um, it really comes down to um, 
the key responsibilities and the impact uh, um, that you deliver as a person and how you measure that on a consistent basis and how you operate off of those uh, KPIs or your personal goals. Uh, whereas in Korea, it was more around the team and how you achieve things as a team. So when it comes to personal performance review, it'll always come down to how much your team achieved. Um, whereas here in the States, especially in tech, it comes down to what you specifically did to drive business impact and how you measured and how you quantify that. Um, so with those goals in mind, I think uh, um, on the surface, uh, especially uh, with the proliferation of all the, you know, Hollywood uh, uh, movies and TV shows around, you know, Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley companies uh, sort of indulging in these uh, uh, luxurious uh, company perks, like awesome cafeteria food, massage chairs and nap pods and everything. That's just on the surface. You think that, oh, these folks are just... Uh, you know, enjoying their lives, not really working all the time. Um, but behind the scene, they're obsessed with delivering impact uh, with their own goals, um, which is why, you know, when I first came to the States and checked out to how Google worked, um, like the first reaction that I had was, how is this company even operating? I would come into the office at 9 a.m. or 8.30 a.m. I was pretty much the only person in the office, whereas back in the LG days, I was pretty much the last person in the office and people would yell at me for being late. And then by 2, 8, 2 p.m. or 3 p.m., you see you know, engineers in their sleepers uh, uh, just heading out, uh, um, taking the commuter bus uh, and just chilling out. Uh, uh, and by 5 p.m., you see nobody in the office. Um, and that's even before pandemic days. Um, now, it took me a couple of years to realize that that's not the end of work for them. Um, they would basically spend that much time in the office, but then go back home and maybe take a shower, be with the kids, and then stay online until midnight or even past uh, midnight to get things done. And that's the sort of a level of accountability. and. Um, the sort of obsession with their personal goals. Um, that's really driving the full sort of empowerment and also the ownership of the projects that they work on uh, on a daily basis for the people that work in tech in general. Um, and, and it's uh, quite different how people, uh, how companies uh, evaluate people. Uh, in companies like Facebook, you basically have uh, almost like a three-month cycle to consistently evaluate yourself uh, from your peers and your managers. Um, um, whereas in companies uh, like Udemy, we would have maybe six month cycle, but um, it really comes down to how your performance is measured and how you strive to achieve that uh, um, with uh, you know, pretty um, sort of a rigorous evaluation of your impact uh, in tech companies uh, uh, in today's environment. So such an interesting area and Again, I did want to get to uh, things like Open Store Drive and some of the new things that are happening. But, you know, you talk about something that's really interesting here, and that's focus on self versus team. Let's draw another analogy. Do you think just as we talked about the success and rise of the LGs, the Samsungs, the declines of the GEs, the RCAs around work ethic, 
do we think that we could be looking at a similar pathway where focus on self versus team to me that speaks to you know the me 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 nature of social media in america and the curation of the TikTok algorithm in america relative to how it's curated in china where it's very different and this is all very much an open secret that TikTok content in china curated for younger people is around education and around things that have substance in america the algorithm it's an it's a catch-all phrase but you'll know what i'm saying is around kardashian related culture very different and part of a a, a systematic plan very open and transparent to make our kids dumber and less competitive and, and it sure seems to be working Give us your reflections on that. We're opening opening up a, a Pandora's box here, but it's a pretty interesting topic. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, I can go down the rabbit hole talking about this for hours. Uh, um, but um, high level, my observation here is that um, it's um, it's less of a country specific challenge uh, when it comes to the proliferation of social media and the impact uh, of the content being generated across all these platforms. Um, it's, it's, I think it's more of a generational um, challenge um, as these uh, technologies um, become more available to pretty much instantly across the globe. Um, and you see, you see more of the same pattern among the younger generation in how they consume content and how they leverage technology um, versus maybe 20 years or 30 years ago. Um, so I think it's a more, more of a generational challenge. Um, same thing I see from different countries uh, in the East Asia as well. Uh, uh, in Korea as well, it's, it's a huge challenge how uh, folks are, younger generation um, kids are just um, getting more obsessed with these uh, uh, social platforms and social um, content um, that may not be always true uh, and could be pretty dangerous uh, when you're consuming them uh, in uh, in isolation. Um, but in general, though, I think there's definitely uh, slightly more focus on these general sort of collective culture and collective uh, team achievement um, in um, East Asian um, cultures um, versus here in the States. Uh, it's definitely more around your own self uh, um, impact uh, uh, in the organizations that you belong to. Um, but I guess uh, one area where I see how that uh, plays really nicely uh, in today's uh, environment is in companies like OpenStore, it's always about your own impact, but also around the broader impact across the entire organization with full transparency around the core metrics that we look at on a weekly basis that we review. Um, and how we consistently work cross-functionally uh, cross to move the business forward as a, as a team, which is which is why I love working here at Open Store. It's always about um, yourself, um, but also your team and the company as well. So that uh, sort of a harmony in thinking about the different aspects uh, really make a big difference in how you run the business. And that's something I really appreciate uh, from Keith's uh, own management principle here, um, which is uh, very well uh, reflected in open store culture. Great segue. So let's talk about open store. It's a founder led business, a little more than 10 years old. 
set the stage for us about and give us sort of the, uh, the open store story, if you will. And then I'd love to get into in particular and make sure that we touch on your new offering and open store drive. Yeah, yeah, sure. So open store in essence is Shopify merchants best friend uh, in my view. So we buy and manage your Shopify stores. And when you think about what we do here, um, it's, it's really amazing um, for any Shopify merchants uh, who have most likely started their business uh, after the pandemic, uh, when the e-commerce uh, really took off uh, um, overnight. Um, they started off uh, with their passion for a specific product, whether it's a fashion product or a beauty product. Um, they would have uh, started the uh, businesses out of their passion, but after a while, they realized the day-to-day -day operations is um, actually a lot of work. Uh, you need to print your shipping labels yourself. You need to manage your cash flow. You need to acquire customers. You need to retain them. It's a lot of work. Um, and when you realize um, it's you're spending 90% uh, of your time um, doing the work that, that, that you don't fully enjoy, um, it's maybe a little bit too late to really think about the next options. And up until now, at that point, uh, your only option was either you continue to grind or shut down the business. But at Open Store, what we do is we basically provide either instant liquidity uh, for you to exit uh, if you want to sell your business, or we give you the opportunity to take a break uh, with this new offering called Open Store Drive which is a managed service where we manage your business for 12 months uh, with a guaranteed monthly payout um, based on the projections that we come up with your past uh, business performance. So in my mind, Open Store is literally Shopify merchants, uh, best friend at this point. Um, we give you all the resources uh, and the options that you can consider um, when you want to take a break from, from, from the day grind, or even consider selling your business and move on to, you know, take a new challenge or take a, take a break to recharge. So e-commerce e continues to be such a hot area. COVID certainly gave it a different level of focus for many of us and changed behaviors. Uh, many of those changes still with us today. Talk about where Open Store fits in that ecosystem and uh, where you see the growth opportunities looking ahead at the rest of 23, 24, 25, et cetera. According to one estimate, there, there, there are about like 3 million Shopify merchants out there. And when you look at the distribution of their sales, um, there's a huge, huge long tail distribution within that uh, 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 3 million uh, merchants out there. Um, and we do think there's a big opportunity for a player like Open Store to come in and provide this uh, awesome opportunity for a liquidity event or, or taking a break for them. Um, like, I, like I told you up until now, they didn't really have any option um, to, to basically take a break. Um, or even just sell their business unless you're seeing, you know, really meaningful traction in sales. Um, but um, that's where you know we see the biggest opportunity for open store right now. 
Um, and over the past uh, two years or so, we've already acquired more than 40 brands uh, and managed them um, pretty well. Um, and as we continue to get better in evaluating these businesses and running them um, with our full capacity, um, I personally think there's a huge opportunity for us to even 10x or even 20x the number of brands that we manage as a company. Um, and then uh, eventually introduce more of a consolidated consumer marketplace where uh, we can have all these uh, consumers uh, shop across different brands, different categories uh, with a more seamless and enjoyable discovery experience, uh, which is something we discuss quite a lot here at Open Store. So no doubt this space is going to continue to go and grow. What keeps you up at night, Sejin? What's your biggest challenge right now focusing in on your your role critical role as head of marketing what keeps me up at night is really a number of different things but um when i when i look at my job my favorite analogy is birds fishing out in the ocean so when you think about a bird fishing out in the ocean these birds would literally have the bird's eye view across the entire ocean to spot major signals that can help you find the right place to catch a fish, right? And once you spot it, you'd go right into the water, go deep, catch the fish, fly out, and move on to another opportunity. That's pretty much my job here. Uh, we manage more than 40 brands. Um, we don't have hundreds of people managing these brands on the marketing team. Um, so my job is to make sure I have the bird's eye view across all these brands and see if there's any um, tr uh, tr uh, issue or any immediate areas of focus. Go right in, figure out the solution, move on and deliver impact and, and basically zoom out to make sure we're looking at the business uh, uh, with the strategic vision as well. So it's a consistent um, back and forth or even zooming in and zooming out. Um, which is a critical skill set that you need in this role. Great answer. Just to wrap, you are now in Miami, a very different place. Also now a hotbed of tech, a uh, lot of buzz out there these days about Miami. Compare the experience San Francisco to Miami, and do we think uh, that Miami might be the new San Francisco in many ways? I've been in Miami about half a year. It's been amazing, honestly. Um, it's way better than I initially expected. Um, I spent um, eight years in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, which I really loved and I still love. Uh, but Miami is definitely uh, different. I think uh, the city itself is way more active, vibrant, um, quite more diverse uh, with more international people from different backgrounds. Uh, Industry-wise, it's way more diverse as well. Um, and I honestly feel more energy in the city uh, versus San Francisco right now. Um, San Francisco, unfortunately, after the pandemic, um, especially with the uh, uh, companies going remote, um, the city went a little bit of a transformation at this point. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm kind of sad to see what San Francisco has become over the past couple of years, honestly. Uh, but Miami, on the other hand, is... Uh, um, pretty vibrant, uh, full of energy, um, amazing food, amazing people. So I've been liking it uh, so far. If you ask me whether Miami is going to be the next San Francisco, 
Um, it's really hard to tell, but I do see a lot of awesome tech startups uh, moving here or even starting here um, over the past uh, three years or so. So we'll see. Uh, maybe in the next uh, five years, we'll see more of this trend uh, continuing uh, with the sort of exodus uh, from the California um, cities and uh, more into Miami and uh, more people uh, more more awesome talent from from those uh, cities and uh, beginning awesome startups here could make a difference here. Yeah, so interesting. We covered, uh, I think, a lot more territory than either either one of us could have predicted here. This was absolutely oh, terrific. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I worry about San Francisco. My wife and I are going out there later this month, and uh, the place I used to always stay, the Cliff, right by Union Square. I'm a little worried you know, to stay there right now, which I think is sad. I'm a New Yorker. I don't worry easily, but I think we'll probably opt for something else uh, just because I think even walking around there in the morning for coffee is a, is a little tricky in that neighborhood. Oh, yeah, totally. When you go to Union Scare right now, it's going to be very depressing. A lot of these stores are pulling out uh, because of, uh, you know, theft challenges and the security issues, but I'm sure the city will get their things out together and uh, bring uh, turn things around uh, over time, but it's going to take some time, in my view. Yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, I'm, I worry about San Francisco, L.A., where I go quite frequently. You know, the again, I'm a New Yorker, <laughs> but the severity of the homeless problem in Los Angeles is off the charts, and the city is just filthy. I don't know how else to say it. You know, there were certain pockets, you know, Beverly Hills, of course, and and when you drive through, you know, Coldwater Canyon, I mean, it's as beautiful as it gets anywhere in the world, I would say. But that dichotomy and the challenges they're having with the fraying social fabric, Skid Row is as bad as anything I've ever seen, you know, going back to and including, you know, when the Bronx was burning, literally, you know, in the 70s. And I saw that and I know what that was like for real. And uh, Skid Row in downtown LA is much worse than that. So it, it's just tough. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I mean, LA and San Francisco are two of my favorite cities here in the States or maybe out in the world. But it's uh, really sad to see the transformation cities went through over the past uh, you know, five to 10 years. But uh well, hopefully uh, in the next five to 10 years, they turn things around and do something and, uh, you know, bring more people back to those beautiful cities again. Yeah, I sure hope you're right. Well, this was such a joy to talk to you. Thanks so much. I think we went a little longer than we planned, but we may have to do a part two. We had so much to talk about here. Yeah, anytime. Well, likewise, uh, thanks again for having me. And uh, it was a pleasure to talk to you and uh, talk a little bit more about my unique experience coming from a conventional background. But Thanks again for having me. Great to have you. Cheers. major brands are looking to shift ad dollars to podcast and digital audio channels, there's a heightened interest in understanding how impactful these channels are to the bottom line. 
In a recent case study, a national home furnishing retailer turned to two partners to help solve this challenge. SXM Media and Claritas collaborated to provide an innovative, integrated set of solutions to effectively launch podcast campaigns and accurately measure the impact those campaigns had across all key KPIs, including the incremental lift in website engagements and purchase conversions. For more information, visit claritas.com slash case studies.